On Sunday, October 15th, 60 Minutes broadcast a story with a high-level DEA agent by the name of Joe Renazizi, who tried to stop the opioid epidemic but ran into a brick wall in Congress. That story was produced following a 60 Minutes Washington Post joint investigation. On January 6, 2017, we interviewed Lenny Bernstein, the Washington Post journalist featured in the 60 Minutes story, for a Cover 2 PPT podcast. In our interview, Mr. Bernstein told us, and I quote, My editor asked me to explain how there could be millions of pills on the street if the DEA and the pharmaceutical companies were doing their jobs. I found that nobody had really looked at the distributors, the folks who get the drugs from the manufacturers and give them to the dispensers. Today, we're releasing our Cover 2 podcast with Lenny Bernstein from our archives. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Lenny Bernstein. Lenny is a health and medicine reporter with the Washington Post. He's been with the Post as a journalist for 17 years, and in the last three years of which have been focused on health and medicine. So, Lenny, welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay. So you've written a couple of very interesting stories on the opioid and the pharmaceutical, really, I should say, industry. And starting back in October, you wrote one about how millions of pills were diverted to the black market. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, We have a year-long project. I guess it's over now because 2016 has ended. And it looked at the um, rising death rates of um, rural white Americans, um, particularly women. Uh, there have been some startling increases in the death rates of that population. And they're mostly attributed to what are called the diseases of despair, uh, alcoholism, suicide, and drug overdose. So we have a bunch of people doing a bunch of stories on that. And uh, my editor asked me to explain how, if the pharmaceutical companies were doing their jobs and the DEA was doing its job. How could there be hundreds of millions of pills on the street for people to get a hold of, become addicted to, and overdose on? And it was a really good question because uh, while people have written about uh, 
parts of this, I, I never, we were never totally satisfied with the, with the answer. So I started to look into it, and I found that there was a lot of reporting on doctors, a lot of reporting on drugstores, and a lot of reporting on manufacturers, but nobody had really looked at the role of the people who distribute the drugs to the drugstores, the folks who get them from the, um, from the uh, manufacturers and give them to the dispensers. And these are huge companies. McKesson, which is the largest of the big three involved in this market, is the fifth largest corporation in America, bigger than virtually anyone except Apple and ExxonMobil and a couple of others, Walmart. So I started to look at what their responsibilities were, and, and it's pretty darn simple. They are required to keep these drugs from being diverted onto the black market. And how, how do they do that? They they tell uh, the DEA when they make sales, they tell them how much they've sent, and if they see anything that um, that looks like diversion, that someone is is using these drugs uh, illegally or, or selling them or putting them in the hands of users, they're supposed to send up a, a, a quickly send a red flag over to the DEA and say, hey, this isn't good. You know, get to know the drug stores and get to know who their clients are and to monitor their own sales. And so this puts them in sort of an awkward position for, for a large business to police themselves. Well, as you might suspect, uh, a, a lot of them did a really good job. Uh, some of them did a pretty good job, but some really didn't do a very good job at all. And uh, what we showed was that over the course of 10 years, some uh, 13 companies, at the very least, that's the only one, that's the ones we could find without any help at all from the DEA, uh, in 16 different cases, they knew or should have known that millions and millions, thousands and thousands, depending on the case, of their opioids were ending up on the street, and they didn't do too too, too much about it. Um, there was haphazard reporting. Uh, there was some cases where they didn't do any reporting, and of course, you know, there's a lot of money to be made here, certainly by keeping these drugstores happy and, and supplied with all kinds of drugs, not just opioids. Lenny, how did you yeah. conclude that they had to know that these were making it to the illegal market? Oh, well, as we dug into these cases. We could show that uh, the DEA had warned them, that their own employees had warned them, and that other folks like state boards of pharmacies had warned them. So, for example, there are emails in some of these administrative cases that nobody had ever looked at before that say, my God, I've just sent so many, so many drugs to this one drugstore. How can they possibly sell all that, let alone house it? We need to go look into that. Well, on some, sometimes they did, but... Other times, they didn't. And it was very obvious that they had to know because these emails were going up to headquarters. Okay. So what happened next? Well, uh, for in terms of us or in terms of the opioid epidemic? So in terms of those – so follow us through in terms of those 13 companies that ah. – Yeah. Okay. So so the DEA launched a, uh, a program called the Diversion Initiative in about 2005. And what they said to themselves was, look, we're just playing whack-a-mole here going after all these drugstores and doctors, you know, individually. Let's try to cut off the drugs at the source, at the distributor level. And uh, they went after these guys. And uh, in quite a few of the cases, they sanctioned them, or at least they uh, were able to shut down warehouses for a period of time. Uh, they were able to find, get big fines against some of them. The largest we found was $150 million against McKesson. Some of them were in the six figures, 
Some of them, there were no fines at all. Some of them, there were, you know, millions or tens of millions. Walgreens, which distributes its own uh, drugs to its own drugstores, paid an $80 million fine. Cardinal Health uh, was hit twice. They paid a $34 million fine. And then in one case that has been pending since 2012, they haven't paid a fine. As a footnote, since recording our podcast with Lenny Bernstein, Cardinal Health settled their second lawsuit for $44 million. So so the DEA went after these guys. And from about 2005 to 2012, 2013, uh, the, the campaign was doing pretty well. It, it wasn't getting everything because the industry is too big, but it was putting a scare into some of these guys. And it was from time to time shutting down warehouses so uh, that the drugs couldn't be distributed. And that was the thing the companies really didn't like was the DEA came in and negotiated a one or a two-year shutdown of a warehouse, say, in in Florida. That would keep the drugs from flowing, and they'd have to bring them in from another place further away, Mississippi or another place. That had to be just a huge deterrent for them in terms of crippling their business because, you know, you talk about some of those fines, and, and then you talk about the magnitude of some of these companies – well, it's it's really it's not much. That's just amounts to a slap on the wrist. The trend then after this, they started to shut them down. Then what happened? Well, long about 2013, 2014, something happened. And what we traced it back to was the DEA headquarters, the lawyers in headquarters suddenly started demanding that the investigators and supervisors in the field meet a much, much higher standard before they would allow them to go in and take enforcement action. So where they were uh, originally just uh, have to sh- had to show um, that, uh, you know, that, that by the um, preponderance of the evidence, they uh, were able to make a case and then go in and do the work. Now they were uh, being asked to, to show their own lawyers that it was beyond a reasonable doubt that it was almost a criminal level standard. And you saw the number of cases just absolutely drop from about 130, that was the high, uh, I believe in 2012 or 2013, down to 41. And uh, the guys in the field, we we found this out, and then we started to talk to guys in the field, and the level of frustration was just off the charts. They would be working for two and three years to bring cases. They'd get all the material they needed, and then they couldn't get headquarters to approve the enforcement. In the meantime, the opioid epidemic is absolutely skyrocketing here in the United States, as you and your your listeners know. Uh, You know, in the past um, 16, 15, 16 years, 180,000 people have died of overdoses from prescription opioids alone. 180,000. So, we were sitting there scratching our heads saying, if anything, you'd think the DEA would be overly aggressive, but that's not what we found. We found the DEA backed way off on these enforcements, and they went way down. And guys in the DEA were willing to tell us this on the record, uh, and, and that was our, our first and main story. Uh, why is the DEA uh, not enforcing the law aggressively and allowing these guys to go in and do these enforcement actions? So that begs the question. Why? We never really answered that question. Um, we tried as hard as we could. Uh, we heard all kinds of theories. In in some cases, you know, people would say, "Well, it's got to be the pharmaceutical administra- uh, pharmaceutical industry. They've you know exerted their influence, and so the DEA is backing off." Well, we never proved that to a to a, our own satisfaction. Other people would say, "Well, there are 
feuds at the DEA and different departments aren't working together and different people are, you know, trying to, to squeeze out other people. And again, we never really proved that to our satisfaction. Um, so we actually, that is an open question that we continue to report on. Uh, we don't really, really know why this happened. We just know that it did and that it continues to, to, to go on. It continues to be allowed and it continues to the detriment of this country because the opioid epidemic is not going away. The most recent figures that came out in, in December uh, show that uh, overdoses of prescription, prescription opioids went up once again, not as much as heroin and fentanyl, which is the current big problem, but they're still going up. And uh, it's just sort of unthinkable at a time when this epidemic is going on that the agency that's responsible for uh, you know policing this industry is backing off. So meanwhile, on the 10 years that uh, your first article kind of uh, reported on, the um, the drug industry recruited away an incredible number of employees from the DEA that were directly involved in many of these investigations. Yeah, this is kind of fascinating. So, you know, the revolving door is an old story in Washington. Uh, people from the finance industry and going to the SEC and people from the SEC going to the finance industry. The Pentagon is probably the biggest example where Pentagon officials, uh, you know, go on to careers at defense, um, d defense contractors and consultants. Um, and it's a, a sort of never-ending uh, problem here in D.C. because, you know, as people will can quickly understand for themselves. If you are working at the DEA, but, you know, you're thinking, well, you know, the second act of my career might be at one of these industries. Are you, in fact, going to take, I'm sorry, one of these companies, mm -hmm. are you, in fact, going to take, you know, as aggressive a stance in protect, to protect the public as you would if you are barred from going to one of these companies later on? Now, you know, that question is, is, is endlessly debated here in D.C., but what we can tell you is that over the course of the distributor initiative, the pharmaceutical industry took at least 42 people from the DEA, and 31 of them came from this rather small division that was responsible for uh, regulating the diversion of opioids. And these were not, you know, insignificant people. There were some folks who were the architects of the enforcement effort. There were some people who were responsible for carrying it out. And, you know, many people feel like, look, if you're working in DEA and you're regulating opioids, you should be absolutely prohibited from ever going on to working in the industry. Now, that's not, that's not what the law says, and it's probably not legal if anybody tried that to, to do it. There are a number of prohibitions against attorneys. They cannot they are. They do have a lifetime ban on working for a company that they have directly been involved in a regulatory case as a member of the DEA. But in most other cases, folks can go on and get right involved with the companies. And um, very clearly, these companies hire them. Uh, you know, there's expertise there. They help them. And they also were people who were working for the DEA. It would seem to be that that would set up a big conflict. Absolutely. Um, you know, is there a conflict of interest there? You know, I think many people uh, will tell you yes. People in our story told you that. Uh, it is also ha could have some influence on people who don't go because let's say you're mulling it over. You work for the DEA. You don't know. I don't know where I'm going to go next. 
I want to go work for the drug companies. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But you see your buddy go on, and he's making twice what you are. And does that have an impact on your behavior? Well, it might. There's certainly an argument to be made there. Um, and there are people at, um, who follow this and study it and say, uh, who call it regulatory capture, where the industry has actually sort of captured the agency that is regulating it by various tactics and by various levels of influence. So is it a conflict of interest technically under the law? Maybe not, but certainly the public has a right to ask whether it is being protected to the fullest extent that it could be. Hmm. So by 2013, I think you said, was when they really decided to put a different standard, the DEA lawyers began to require a higher standard of proof to move cases forward? Right. And this is after uh, they'd been had this recruiting campaign uh, going for a good 10 years or so. Yes, that's true. And the, uh, the higher standard is not the only thing that happened. Um, we showed in our stories that after three years of trying, uh, the distributors got through a law that uh, essentially takes away the DEA's most powerful weapon, and that is the immediate suspension order. Uh, under an immediate suspension order, they can come in if they uh, their lawyers have decided that what a company is doing is an immediate um, threat to the public health and safety. They can come in and shut you down. They put like police tape over the locker, and no opioids are getting in or out of that locker until you show them that you you've got things under control. Well, that law gutted that authority. And now it is extremely difficult to use the immediate suspension order against a distributor because they're too far upstream. It's very difficult to show that something that someone is doing by transporting drugs to a dispenser is going to immediately affect the public health and safety. They changed some definitions to make things uh, much more difficult. So that is gone now. Um, and they also added, uh, in, under this law, they added a corrective act action plan. So these companies can come in to the DEA and say, well, you're right, we did this, but we're correcting it. Here's how we're correcting it. There's really no need to shut us down. There's really no need to sue us. There's really no need to fine us because here's our plan and here's how we're going to fix it. Um, there are, some of the old school guys are very upset about that because they think if you violated the law, you need to pay a price. We want you to fix it. Of course we want you to fix it, but you also should pay a price. Now you might be able to get away with just the corrective action plan. We're not sure yet because we haven't seen the public. That's a relatively new thing since last April or May. It's still being implemented, so we're not quite sure how that's going to play out yet. Hmm. Okay. So um, any idea, any of the changes that are going to take place in the DEA's tactics in fighting the opioid epidemic as we approach this new year? Well, a bunch of senators, nine senators here, have demanded a whole bunch of information from the DEA based on our stories. They raised a whole number of questions uh, that the DEA um, uh, has responded to. That information has not come out yet, has not been made public. Um, as of right now, we do not see a lot of change in the DEA's tactics, um, other than that they are trying to cooperate, to, to forge a more cooperative relationship with the industry, with the distributors. Um, and by that I mean there was a lot of concern uh, among the distributors and a lot of complaining that the last uh, 
the last diversion chief, a fellow named Joe Ranazisi, was treating them sort of like criminals. You're the bad guy. I'm the cop. I'm going to regulate you. I'm going to find out what you did wrong, and I'm going to punish you for it. Their line all along, and I don't mean that in a uh, negative sense, but their approach was, why don't we work together? And if we work together, we can stop opioid distributing. You don't need to treat us like, uh, you know, you're the regulator and we're the regulatee. Let's figure out ways that we can work together. Well, there's a new guy now who uh, replaced Joseph Renazisi. He was pushed out, and he has adopted a much more cooperative approach. And what we need to see is how that works. Maybe it will work. Uh, maybe it won't. Um, right now, what we know is that the opioid, uh, the death toll from uh, opioid overdoses is continuing to rise. So maybe it is time for a more cooperative approach with the industry. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm neutral on that subject. I'm waiting to see. But there are quite a few people who think that uh, that's not the way to go, that the industry has gotten, one, gotten over on the DEA and that it's not going to have an impact. I think we'll have to see what happens. Yeah. Recently, there was a uh, article done in the, I think that this was uh, West Virginia, in fact, yes, it was the uh, Charlotte uh, Gazette, uh, excuse me, the Charleston right. Gazette. Um, right. Eric Eyer uh, did kind of an analysis of what the, these distributors had shipped over several years to West Virginia. And what he determined was it was the equivalent of 433 uh, pills for every man, woman, and child in uh, in West Virginia, just mm -hmm. absolutely incredible. And I guess his report went through 2012. But the idea was that this trend, at least in their state, is absolutely um, a uh, trend that continues to this day. So can you comment on your kind of related experience to uh, to that? Yes. That is was a really good work by that by Eric Iyer in that newspaper. That's a staggering number of pills. And I don't have it in front of me, but I think in certain counties it was even more. Like I remember Mingo County reading that there were just a wash in opioids, um, that there was no possible way that any reasonable person could say this number of pills should be going into this tiny little county for therapeutic purposes. There is no other way to conclude. There's really nothing else you could conclude other than that some of these distributors were sending these drugs because they were being diverted and they were being used uh, illicitly or misused. Um, we found examples of that all over this country. I mean, you know, there were um, in the beginning in 2005 when you could still buy opioids on the Internet, there was a little company out in California, a very small company called Southwood Pharmaceuticals. And they were sending literally millions of opioids to Internet pharmacies in the course of one year. Four million, seven million. I don't have the data right in front of me. But there is no way anybody could argue that what they were doing was supplying legitimate, legitimate pain patients, of which I would like to say there are very, very many. And whenever we write one of these articles, we inevitably get hundreds of replies from people saying, you're going to cut off the opioid supply to legitimate pain patients, and we need these, and we can't function without them. That is not what we're trying to do. That is not our intent. We understand that there's a legitimate need out there for pain medication. But what is being supplied to places like West Virginia and other parts of this country is far in excess 
of what is needed by legitimate pain patients. And some of it is just going to the street. It led to addictions. Those addictions have led to uh, follow-on epidemics of heroin and fentanyl. There's no doubt about this. All the public health authorities say it. And so if you want to protect future generations from this, you have to start cranking back on the amount of opioids that are getting through to the street. So what have you seen out there and and heard about that uh, communities maybe are doing that is making a difference in terms of uh, the epidemic? Well, not a whole heck of a lot has made a a difference in the overall national epidemic. Uh, As I said earlier, the number of overdoses continues to climb. Mm -hmm. The biggest problem now appears to be fentanyl, I think. Fentanyl overdoses rose by 75% 2015 over 2014, uh, which is scary, scary. Uh, That's just a, that's a very sharp rise in overdoses, and that's a very powerful drug. And it gets mixed in with heroin, and people don't understand that that's what they're getting, and there are a lot of overdoses. Now, I will say that in individual communities, uh, I have seen expansions of treatment, uh, which is desperately needed. Um, I have seen prosecutors saying, look, we can't arrest our way out of this. If you're a user, you need help. I'm going to, I'm going to get you help. I'm not going to, I'm not going to arrest you and throw you in jail because you're addicted to opioids. We want to get you some help. We want to get you better. Uh, I've seen more people start at least a little bit to recognize that this is a brain disease, that this is a, a disease just like any other disease, uh, heart disease, cancer, and say and say and say uh, you know we would never treat someone with a physical disease this way, and we've got to start treating people with uh, addictions uh, the same way we treat people with physical diseases. We have seen great uh, uh, widespread use and increased use of the antidote naloxone, uh, otherwise known as Narcan. That seems to be spreading all over the country. First responders are carrying it now, much more than they did even one or two years ago. Uh, it's available in some cities like Baltimore to anyone who wants it, anyone who wants Narcan in their house because they're worried that somebody might be might overdose can just go to the drugstore and get it. They, uh, Baltimore is also sort of innovative in that they're giving it to uh, to uh, users, and because they happen to be the ones who are usually around when somebody overdoses, so. Um, they want them having Narcan. Um, so you're seeing that the country is learning. The CDC in March put out a very strong guidance to uh, physicians about how to use pain pills and how to crank back on them and use them very judiciously, just give out a few at a time, try alternative therapies first. So the issue is front and center. There's been a lot of learning. There's been a lot of education. But we still see overdoses rising. And until we see overdoses decline, uh, we aren't making the progress that we need to make. Last month, the Surgeon General put out his first report on this, on America and addiction. What kind of an impact do you think that that will have on our country? Well, I think when the Surgeon General takes the time to do all that research and put out all that uh, information for a brief time at least people stop for a moment and they take notice it was akin to when he put out 
not this Surgeon General, but that office, put out its smoking report, and everybody said, whoa, okay, this is a big deal, or an HIV report, or an obesity report. For a brief period of time, that gets heavily covered, and people stop and they listen. You know, he's nicknamed the nation's doctor, and in the nation's doctor tells you, we have a real problem here. This is the problem. These are its elements. These what we. This is what we need to do. For some period of time, that is noticed and it's followed up by by doctors. And I think you see doctors catching on. Um, there are still problems, um, but you know the number of prescriptions has declined a bit in this country over the over the past couple of years, uh, which tells me that well maybe they are looking into alternative therapies or maybe they are turning some people down who are asking for more opioids, or maybe they are looking at these databases and seeing catching doctor shopping because they're at least aware. And I think that that's what the Surgeon General's report's value really was. Be aware of this. Take note of it. Do something. It's a huge problem. So you mentioned the databases and looking at databases. Um, so that's something in in Ohio here. We have the ORS database. Mm-hmm. And before filling any prescriptions or writing any prescriptions, physicians are advised to review that, look at that. And uh, pharmacists, likewise, are supposed to be uh, consulting with that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm told that there's a pretty high level of compliance now in our state for that since that's gone into effect. What do you see elsewhere? Do you see that um, that that's starting to come around? Well, this is something I've been looking into recently, and uh, I'm going to generalize here because the each state is different. What we are seeing in general is that in places where it's mandatory, and I believe Ohio is mandatory, there is a great deal of compliance. The doctors are worried that they could get in trouble if they don't check uh, for each prescription or whatever your state requires. Where it's voluntary, you are not seeing the same level of compliance. It's still down near 25%, according to one study I read, in states where doctors have the choice of looking a particular patient up on the database before they make that prescription. Now, I'm not faulting the doctors here. They make a very good argument. They're incredibly busy. They... If they had to look up every patient, as they do in certain states like Kentucky and Massachusetts, it means extra time for them or the people who they delegate that um, chore to. And they make a compelling case that, you know, would you rather have me doing this or would you rather have me devoting more time to uh, to the patient? And I understand that argument. But there isn't any denying the statistics that when it's voluntary, they don't do it nearly as often as when it's mandatory. And it really depends on where you come down on this argument, uh, whether you know, we have to have mandatory compliance in order, to, um, in order to, to help quell the opioid epidemic, or whether we can leave it to these doctors who are getting better at it for sure, but still leave it to them and let them uh, do it voluntarily. And that is a question for the policymakers. It's a difficult question for the policymakers. Hmm. Yeah, I would imagine so. So, Lenny, um, you've extensively investigated the drug industry and, you know, those that are really partly to blame for the opioid epidemic. 
What final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners about what you've learned? What I've learned is that this began with the very well-meaning intention by the medical community back in the late 90s to treat pain as the so-called fifth vital sign. There was a movement that began that said, we are not aggressively treating people's pain. We're not handling it adequately. We need to do better. And at the same time, as you well know, OxyContin came on the market. Purdue Pharma pushed it real hard. And some misinformation was given to doctors. And opioids began to be handed out much too easily, much too readily. People became addicted. And then the epidemic bloomed and has now moved on to heroin and to fentanyl. And what I think needs to happen in some way or form to protect future people and to bring this epidemic down is that the amount of prescribing needs to go way down, the amount of drugs in supply needs to go way down, the amount that you as an individual patient can get at any one time needs to go down. There's no reason for you to go to a doc, have a procedure, and get and come home with a prescription for 60 Vicodin. Come home with a prescription for 10 Vicodin. And if that's not sufficient, then we'll get you more. There are people who live with chronic pain. They need to be able to get their drugs. There can't be obstacles in their way. But there's no reason that they should be getting endless prescriptions without trying other forms of therapy. Insurers need to insure and and reimburse for other forms of therapy much more readily for uh, physical therapy, for uh, non-opioid analgesics, for um, acupuncture, for other ways of dealing with pain, both chronic and acute. And all these different parts of the community need to come together and crack down on these pills. There's no other advanced society in the world with anywhere near this number of opioids in circulation. We, we have billions of opioids in circulation in the United States. We consume probably 85 or 90 percent of the world's opioids. That is crazy. That has to end. And that, uh, that is the way this, op- this epidemic is going to slow down. Well, Lenny, I want to thank you for your time today. Really appreciate that and appreciate your insight. It's just, it's amazing what you've uncovered here. It's been enlightening. Absolutely. My pleasure. And, um, you know, what you guys are doing is all part of the effort to, uh, you know, to help save people's lives. So um, thank you, too. Thank you. We've been joined today by Lenny Bernstein, journalist for The Washington Post, who specializes in healthcare and medicine. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.